I, I don't think I'll ever stop as long as my legs work and as long as my breath holds all right. I, I think I'll always be under the ocean. I think I'll always walk through the forest. And I think it's just extremely important to have our children um, indoctrinated into that way of life. So maybe we can take a little bit of a step back um, and reconnect with that side of our side of our DNA, I suppose, of like that we were all at one stage hunters and gatherers. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. The pandemic has allowed many to reflect on what's important, to reflect on how to live our lives, on the connection we have. Some were already on a new path for a greater connection, and the events of 2020 have only confirmed their new path as the right one. Mark LeBroy is the co-owner of all the Three Blue Ducks restaurants. Mark, how are you going? Yeah, I'm good, mate. How are you, Huck? I'm good. And it's been a, about a year ago I caught up with you and you said that you were going to spend the next year trying to eat food that you'd either caught or killed or, or grew. How, how has the last year been? Um, mate, that side of things has been, has been pretty special, to be honest. Um, obviously, there's a couple of little slip-ups here and there, like Hannah, my wife, she, she loves a chicken. Um, so occasionally a chicken will find its way into the household and I'll kind of be like, what's this? You know, like, um, but, but to be honest, um, yeah, we've, we've, we've stuck to it pretty well overall. Um, you know, obviously there's, you know, there's meals that I have in the restaurant if you're working in the evenings or whatever, but eating at home has, has been a big focus around either, you know, lobsters or, you know, we had a really good squid season this year, um, back in March. Um, so we ate a lot of those. Um, and then we've got a beach house in Colborough, so we, we head down there like a family beach house. We head down there. I've, I've been uh, taking a little kayak out and, and catching flatheads off the kayak, so that's always um, gone down a treat. And I've been, um, you know, I've, I've been on the deer pretty hard, um, shot a couple of goats as well. So um, that's, that's kept the freezers full and kept us going. Wow. What, what's some of the challenges involved in that? Like that's some pretty big animals, the terrestrial animals that you mentioned. What's some of the channel challenges in harvesting those? Um, the challenges in those is, is like making sure the conditions are right for processing. Um, to be honest, you, you, you want to be out there when it's nice and cold and there's not a lot of fly around because um, they can smell a fresh kill quite quickly and they move in and um, they can quite quickly lay their eggs, like lay their eggs within that flesh. Um, but the technology that's attached to it now, like the game bags that you can get are, are really good, they, like they're really breathable and all different sizes. And I'm getting pretty quick at, um, at breaking these animals down. So a leg comes off, goes straight into a game bag, um, hanging in a tree, and then the next one goes up. And, you know, you break down the animal pretty quickly, get all the organs out, um, and then, you know, you, you sort of set your pack up and, usually radio to Moily or Valsy or someone else who's with me um, and um, and get them to help me to cut my meat out. So um, it's it's been um, it's been really good. It's been really good to be able to connect with it over like connect with other chefs um, who, who are also involved in hunting. We might dig a little deeper into the hunting side of things a bit later, but you've had some serious challenges as a as a restaurant group this year with multiple venues and one also in Melbourne that you haven't had access to. What's this period of time been like for you? Mate, to, to be honest, 2020 has probably been um, 
it's been the best year of my life and it's been probably the first time if I'm totally honest with you, the first time that I've ever felt like uh, like some level of depression, um, you know, like it, the the whole thing with COVID had really pretty heavily affected me as far as like, you know, will I be able to provide for my family? Um, and I think that it, that whole pressure was compounded by the fact that we had a baby girl this year. Um, you know, Han has taken a year off of um study she's studying medicine at the moment um which is obviously pretty intense um and then she's she's taken a year off that uh we've we've had a child and then i'm kind of like you know i've got one job to do and that job is to kind of well, one of the jobs i've got to do is like try and you know bring a bit of money home so we can we can pay to to, to support ourselves and then you know we bought a house a couple of years ago and you know feeling the pressures of a mortgage and all the rest of it um, as well as a newborn and, you know, it's a big change to our home environment and then just not being able to have a little bit of cash to lubricate everything to make sure that mortgages are paid and all that sort of stuff. So to be honest, there was a lot of, there was a lot of money stress that was attached to this year, which has been a bit shit. Um, and then obviously you, you see all the people that have been affected by the closures of the restaurants and, you know, you see people's livelihoods and particularly um, the people that are internationals that work within the restaurant group um, that weren't supported by, that weren't supported by the JobKeeper program. Um, you, you see, you know, really key and pivotal staff members that um, have kind of, ha- have been left behind um, by our government. And I, I find it, I found that whole system quite, quite strange because, those guys in particular have been such big contributors to our industry and as and from a tax perspective, you know, everybody's been paying their taxes. No one gets a free run. Um, but when it comes time to get a bit of a leg up, it's um, it's the internationals that got left behind and uh, I, f- I found that a bit stink. But other than that, I think that uh, particularly in New South Wales, things were dealt with quite well, you know, like we've, we've had a lot of support as, as a restaurant group. Um, we've had a lot of support from our government, obviously, and, you know, we all went on to JobKeeper. The banks came to the table and, you know, the mortgages were frozen. And so, you know, we we were able to get through this. Like, this hasn't killed the ducks. It buckled us for a little bit, but um, it definitely hasn't killed the ducks. So, You had you had challenges for the majority of this year with the New South Wales restaurants, but you were in the process of trying to open one in Victoria. Can you tell us a bit about that and obviously with no access to to melbourne it's had its challenges yeah yeah um well apart from not being able to go down to victoria to hunt deer um there has been a, a massive restaurant that we've built out in tullamarine um with the new urban surf project and we haven't been able to open it um so you know like we've we've we spent quite a lot of money down there you know like there's there's millions of dollars that are tied up that's tied up in that project um, and where, you know, everything that we've been able to achieve with the ducks has all been on the back of the ducks. You know, um, we, we don't have any investors. We don't borrow money. Everything has come from us, you know, so it's, um, and it's, it's all come from, you know, sales within the restaurant. That's, that's how we've been able to grow this business. So t- when you spend a lot of money, um, you know, on a particular project like that one down in Melbourne, uh, we need to get that thing open. And seeing it close and sitting there and collecting a little bit of dust uh, for the last what eight nine months has um, has been pretty tough to see. So, yeah, what's the position at the moment with Melbourne 
society opening up and restaurants trading again, albeit with really limited numbers. What's what's it looking like for you guys down there? Well, I think we're looking to open uh, late November. So it, it, I think uh, today or yesterday it was released that the borders will be open on the twenty third or twenty fourth, something around there. Um, so I think we're gonna we're gonna skip over the border pretty soon. Um, get ourselves down there and, and get the team indoctrinated and set up and let's let's fire this thing up. Um, we've got quite a big outdoor space, a big deck that overlooks the the wave. Um, that's you know fully serviced, so we'll be able to take we'll be able to still um, handle quite a few patrons without uh, you know breaking or bending any COVID COVID restrictions. What sort of um, model of the three blue ducks will we see there? You've there's you know there's a, something that's quite similar at the core of all of them, but they also all have their own identity. What what can we expect in Melbourne? Uh, I think um, I think what Melbourne will, will hold for us is is like a something that we've learned a lot about the farm and, and that is that, um, you, you know, the, the farm is quite an attraction. It's a beautiful place to be. Um, you know, you've got the macadamia orchards. You've also – it's a proper working farm. You know, you've got guys that are growing stuff for us that we use in the restaurant. You know, there's all the pigs in the fields and all the rest of it. Um, and, and our patrons engage with that, with that space um, and it's – you know, they, they enjoy themselves. So, I think with the with the urban surf with the wave park, um, you know, people are going to be able to engage with the lagoon. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. And you know, when in the early days of testing with urban surf, um, I I was so blown out by how stoked everyone was to be in the lagoon and be in the park and ca- like just catch waves and get barreled off their head. You know, and it was like I've never seen an energy attached to a place. Like it was like everyone was losing their minds, you know, and I thought what a cool place to have a restaurant alongside of this. Like people are going to be in such a good mood. They're going to be so, so happy. And I think that that's going to be one of the, the correlations between Byron and uh, and Melbourne, and that is that when people go to Byron, generally speaking, they're on holidays and they're enjoying themselves and they're having a nice time. Uh, so their attitude towards life is is, is a bit heightened, I think. Um, and with Melbourne, I think that if you've been engaged with the pool and you've got barreled off your face, uh, or you've caught a couple of nice waves and done some nice turns, and you come into the restaurant, I think it's it, I think that everyone's going to be pretty frothy. It doesn't seem all that long ago that the Three Blue Ducks first started in Bronte and you guys were really part of that change in our food culture of sort of elevating everyday eats um, and now you've got multiple outlets. How, how did it How did it all start? Yeah, <clears throat> like we just had our 10-year anniversary to be honest and, mate, I, I'm pinching myself as well. It was, it was it, the, the, the story of the Ducks is something I'm, I'm really – quite proud of like I'm one of the original three founders of the Ducks um it was Sam Chris and myself and we were all buddies because we did a bit of surfing in Morocco and then they came to visit me when I was living in Switzerland so we were up in the mountains doing a bit of snowboarding and stuff and um you know we sort of hashed this idea of like imagine if we could have a restaurant one day you know when we were all working in this surf camp in Portugal one summer and um you know we sort of chatting about these ideas of a business and we're young like you know i was probably 26 at the time sammy was like early 20s chris a similar age and um and then we're all home on a holiday and at the same time sam was sam actually was in sydney he had a, he had a business and um 
this chicken shop came up for a lease and, and Sam sort of pestered the owner uh, about, you know, getting in there and this idea of a cafe. And I, 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 I was destined to go back over to, to Switzerland and um, I just sort of, did, you know, had tools down and said, let's, let's do this, you know, let's do this with the guys. And so Sam, Chris and I actually started it and then about a year and a half later, uh, Daz came on and then um, Jeff, he owned a pizza shop next door. So we, you know, he, we, we took over his pizza shop and built a deck between the two places and just made a restaurant. We did everything ourselves. We got on the tools, um, you know, we just sort of build these, build these things ourselves. Little did we know that that was going to be like a building trend of it looking quite rustic. It, it looked rustic because we were shit, we were shit tradesmen. Um, you know, there was a couple of mil missing here and there it was because we, we bloody cut it the wrong size and we didn't have enough money to go and buy another piece of timber to cut it the right size. Um, so, so yeah, we, we had a really good laugh with doing it. It was such a can-do attitude. And then, you know, obviously, um, you know, as little ideas pop along or opportunities pop along, I think we've always been quite open to opportunity. And then if something sounds fun, we, we, we engage with it. So if it doesn't, we, we try and sideline it. Well, you were growing herbs and vegetables in the back garden at, in Bronte and, you know, you have the farm now. There's that real connection with produce. Um, what's what's at the core of your cooking? How do you approach um, the creation of new dishes and menus? I think the I think it's just it's it's let the produce do the talking. To be honest, like like you know me, I I love a story. I love a bit of a chat, um, and I think that getting to know um, getting to know who your producer is, who, who your suppliers are, and, and and like learning about the people behind this industry, I find very warming. It makes me want to support that. Um, so usually when they present a product to me, I'm like, oh, okay, well, can we make something here? Or um, I found, you know, hunting and gathering has kind of been a big influence on me, like wanting to use a few more of these ingredients, but then also discovering the hurdles that are attached to that. Um, you know, like our government regulations don't allow us to to use, use the deer um, on the menu. It's very, very difficult. There's only a couple of suppliers. There's Fairgate um, Wild Venison that, that are up north. Um, he's doing an incredible job. Um, so, you know, we use a bit of, the, of their gear, but I'd love to be able to use some of the stuff from our regions within, uh, like, our, the, you know, the southern restaurants. So, yeah, I, I suppose, you know, it's to let the, let the ingredients do the talking um, and just try and make it as tasty as possible. We started getting into fermenting and pickling and all that sort of stuff. Um, probably basically from day dot. So that's always been a part of our, our diets. But I do remember like one sort of pivotal time where I had a meal at Daz's house and, um, he, you know, he just had a barbecue, cooked everything over the fire and he charred up all his veggies and charred the salad a little bit and it was like real punchy and vinegary. And I was like, mate, fuck, this is so tasty, man. Like we should, this, is what we, this is what we need to be doing in the restaurants. Like let's just cook how we eat at home at work. Because then it, it'll just it won't really be work. It'll be like cooking at home. So um, that's that's kind of that's kind of how we looked at it. So, well, you and Darren both spent time at Tetsuya's, which is a world away of from what you offer at the Three Blue Ducks. What, what was that time like at Tetsuya's? <laughs> Mate, so that time at Tetsuya's was fun. Uh, I was uh, like I actually found it really really tough to begin with. Like I I, I have to say I almost didn't make it through there. Um, Specky gave me a fucking hard time as well, and um, but you know a, a couple of months in, um, I sort of started to find my feet and, and got used to it, and 
you know, it's, like, I was pretty fresh-eyed. You know, I was pretty, yeah, I was pretty, I was pretty young when I went in there. So I think I was 20 years old when I went in. Um, and you know, you sort of you get bollocks and you get your ass kicked a little bit, and it was pretty tough back then. We we're doing the 80-hour weeks and all the rest of it. Um, so, but it was, you know, I was there with guys like Daniel Puskas and, um, and Dazza was in there, Shannon Debrasini was in there. So there was these incredible, incredible chefs around me, um, and being a young chef and, and learning about that world. And I just, yeah, I remember feeling a very, uh, strong sense of pride, uh, that I was a part of that group of, of chefs that were working there during that time. It was a pretty tough kitchen, um. And you know we 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 were definitely enjoying ourselves. Like it was tough. There was times where you you know you get a bit tired and all the rest of it. But I feel like it, it taught me a lot about myself. Taught me a lot about discipline. So and I, I think I definitely needed that after being a bit of a scallywag coming through school. Well, let's have a look at that. I mean, you were quite young when you were at Tetsuya's, but how did you become a chef in the first place? Um, I remember I remember working with my uncle um, in his restaurant. He he used to work at Forty One Level Forty One. That was that's an old chestnut. Um, back in the day when when uh, when that was when that was still ex- existed, and um, he was in there, and then he had his own restaurant, and I, I just I idolised him. You know, I thought he was such a great. I thought he was such a great guy um, and, you know, I idolised the work and I quite liked the attitude towards it and I think that, you know, there's there's two things in my body that are highly highly sensitive, um, that have that are, that are highly sensitive and it's like my hands and my mouth, um, you know, I'll, I'll bloody talk underwater but, I, like, I get so affected by taste um, and I really enjoy working with my hands. So whether it's making something or building something or, um, you know, or, or, or working. And so I, I kind of like, I feel that that was always, like I was always destined to sort of be involved in this type of field or, or you know, like, you know, that, the labour side of things. Um, but I just remember eating things being like, man, this is so tasty. Like you got to try this, you got to try this. Like it was such an experience. And then obviously the, the amount of flavour profiles that are out there and combinations is endless. So you know, it's not something that you learn in a hurry. The last year that you've had with a, within with keeping in mind that you wanted to try and harvest as much as possible um, what you ate, what led to that decision to go down that path? Um, I started to learn a bit more about our food system. Like, you know, obviously your journey as a chef is is like this – there's so much time of like insecurity, you know, you're a young chef, you get in the kitchen, you don't really know much. Um, you see all these other, other talented guys around you and they're, um, they're working with, with produce and they've got a lot of confidence and they're, you know, creating dishes and there's, you know, you, you're tasting these flavor profiles and you're like, that's incredible. Like, will I ever be able to do that? And then I think that as time passes, you, you start to find your groove and you find what your food is and, and you find your voice through your cooking. Um, and then I, I th- you, you find your style, you know, and then I think that that becomes, that becomes you. And then I just found my journey sort of led me up and down the food chain. You know, who are we feeding? Um, and then where does it come from? So when I went down the pathway of where does it come from, you know, you start to learn about our food system and, you know, how animals are reared and, you know, you also learn about, our environment and what's out there and you know is it is it possible to be a subsistence hunter and gatherer from both the ocean and the land and it's very very possible and i think that it's just 
um, the, the further down I went, uh, that like the, you know, the further I went down that pathway, um, the more I realized that this is something that really resonated with me and, um, I wanted to really engage with it. So. Well, there must be some funny stories from the last year, um, trying to hunt deer and all sorts of things. Have you got any interesting tales from your experiences? <laughs> um, yeah, I've got a couple. Oh, like, I've got a couple. I've got one, I suppose. Like, um, D- David Moyle and I were, we were, uh, we were camped out in a blind, waiting for these deer. We'd been told that these deer cross from this really, uh, from the state forest in Victoria, across into someone's property. They're out in the open, and then they're heading off to this organic uh, pro- uh, cattle country, where there was like knee-high grass. And it was it was irresistible for them. We knew that they were going to be coming across over there. So we um, we camped up under this under this log, and we're sort of waiting there. It, you know, it starts to pour with rain, and we weren't wearing the right clothes, so we're sitting there bloody shivering. So we sort of huddle underneath this big fallen over tree, try and stay out of the rain. And you know, I remember Moiley's like. Mate, let's let's go. It's windy. It's cold. And I was like, No, nah, I, th- I, f- I have a feeling it's going to come. It's going to come. It's going to come. And then Molly's like pointing out all these different grasses that we can eat. We're sort of laying in the grass and like chewing on this, you know, oxala and stuff. <laughs> and then just like just getting into it, and we're wet and we're cold and a bit miserable. And then it just goes perfectly still. Goes perfectly quiet. The wind drops right out. And then yeah, you you know, up, up ahead I see these these three young spikers like sort of playing and they're, as they're walking across the top of this, you know, this bowl the range is about 250 metres away or something. And I was like, Moily, like there they are. And Moily's like, where? I can't, I can't, I can't see them. You know, before you know it, I'd sort of taken a shot and I shot one of these deer and he actually hit in the spine and so it was dead instantly. Um, and it was on the deck and we walked up there and, you know, we just harvested this animal and I just think, that was just such a like it was such that story of if you put the effort in and you you do the work and you you hold out like you you, you get the re- the reward. Um, so it's not such a funny story really, but just one of like I, I just feel that story just always resonates me with me with with hunting. You know, you just you got to you got to there's a bit, there's an element of discomfort that's attached to it. Um, you know that there is a discomfort with killing an animal and taking something's life. Um, and there is a discomfort with like being in the bloody cold and misery without the right gear on. Um, but the rewards are so fantastic. You know, like we, we took the liver and the heart out of that animal and we, we cooked that up and, um, you know, we harvested every little skerrick of meat out of that deer and, and took it back to our families and, you know, and shared it amongst us. And we were, we, we were given that reward again and again as we, every time we serve it up. So I think that, um, I suppose that's probably one of the main reasons. That is the main reason why I'm a hunter, to be honest. You mentioned that you've got a freezer full of uh, deer or venison. Um, what's the best way to cook venison? It's it's a challenging meat to get right, but it is it is beautiful to eat. I think that um, that's that's kind of the the stigma that's been attached to venison. I find. Um, it, you know, like there's a you can you can not cook it at all. You can do a venison tartare and it's unbelievable. You can you can use the liver exactly the same way that you would use any other liver. You know, like you treat it like a chicken liver. It makes amazing parfaits. I, I like to serve that with like you know onions, liver, and, and roshi, like a really traditional mountain man breakfast. Um, 
And then obviously you've got your prime cuts, you know, the tenderloins that come out of it. It's, it's, that's some of the best meat I've ever eaten in my life. Um, it's extremely tender and, you know, it has a complexity of flavour. Um, I like the red deer and the samba deer the most. Um, they're, they're both larger-bodied animals um, and they, they're not as gamey as, as, the, as the smaller fallow. Um, but they're the only – I haven't had the chittle yet um, or the rusa. And there's a hog deer, which is like a really small deer that we have in Australia, but they're in very limited numbers. And I haven't had access to any of those types of properties yet. But, um, yeah, the reds and the samba are my two favourite. And, you know, like I, I cook it, you know, I, I use it like steaks. So, you know, the leg meat or I'll, I'll mince up and put put through sausages or make into burgers or make schnitzels out of and stuff. So, you know, like, yeah, it's, it's pretty versatile. The shanks go really well slow-cooked. Um, yeah, and it makes a, it makes a very nourishing bone broth as well. So you know, we try to try to use everything we can. You mentioned this year's you've had um, some mental health challenges, but you also, in the same sentence, said it's the be- been the best year of your life. And um, can you tell us a bit about that and and what it's been like for you to become a father for the first time? Oh man, that is like I, I almost have a tear. Why it's like. Is the it has been the it was the hands down the most wonderful experience I've ever had, um, you know seeing seeing Han, um, you know obviously go through the process of being pregnant and you know she's obviously very active and she was still studying medicine at the same time she did really well with that and and then you know we were we, I remember the day the, the day that Ava was was born <laughs> we are uh, we were doing this like 5k loop around our, where our house is and we walk up sublime point and um hans waters had broken and we were we were intending on having a home birth and um hans waters had broken and we only had 18 hours to have a, a hospital supported home birth so we said oh let's we'll get we'll get up um we'll get up sublime point and um, we were up there, and we'd, you know, I'm, you know, I made Han do like 85 squats or something in the, on the trip. So everywhere there was a little flat plateau in the walk, we would we would both do squats together, <laughs> you know, like in between contractions. It's like she's just an incredible human. Um, and then you know we got back, uh, got back home, and and then you know obviously the the waters were starting to leave the body, and you know the, this process was happening. We didn't make the 18 hour cutoff, but we we ended up. Um, giving birth in the, the birthing ward, the natural birthing ward that they have in um, at Wollongong Hospital. And um, the room was actually designed by Han's mum, who's who's one of the, the, the midwives in charge there. And so we went into the pool there and, you know, I just, I saw, I saw life, I, was, I saw life coming to this world in a very beautiful and natural way. And then, you know, caught our child as she, as, you know, she arrived and saw her take her first breath and just opened her eyes and looked around and she didn't cry or anything, but I, I bawled my eyes out. Um, so it was just, mate, it was, yeah, it's, it's just incredible. It's such an, it was incredible to see and be a part of. And, you know, I, I thought that I loved Han as much as I could before that day. And I just found that there was more space in my heart for her or my heart grew bigger. I don't know what it is, but, um, it's just like this is the most incredible woman I've ever met and ever seen in my life. So um, just so so feeling so proud. And I think that's um, that's probably one of the things that hit me so hard about not being like 
like being able to provide being thrown into question where I was like, fuck, I could, like, I can't, are we going to be able to make this? You know, like, are we going to be on our ear here? Like, are they going to take our house? Um, I didn't know. I didn't know that we would be sort of, I didn't know that the government was going to sort of throw some support um, in regards to that. And I thought, you know, would I, would we, as well as millions of other Australians, sort of be put on our ear and, and find ourselves homeless or searching within a rental market, like, and then trying to find somewhere to live on, you know, 750 bucks a week, like, you know, we, we were on, all on job. We all went on to JobKeeper. We've only just recently come off. Um, so yeah, it was real. It was a bit. It was a bit touch and go there. And I think that's where I don't know. Maybe your ego gets a little bit bruised. Where you're like, I'm, I'm not able to provide. Like, fuck, this is this is tough. Um, but you know what? I think that everybody sort of managed it as best. We've managed it as best we can. So feels like we're coming to the other side of it now. With this journey you've been on for a greater connection to the food that you eat and food that you provide for your family, how, how does that? How do you feel about that and how does that fit in now that you have a daughter? Will, will this sort of hunter-gathering, um, will that continue? Yeah, most definitely. And uh, actually I'm, I'm stoked that we have we have a girl. You know, I'm stoked we had a baby girl. Um, and I think uh, – people sort of make reference that what I'm doing is like really quite unique in regards to, you know, like really engaging with, with hunting and gathering and, um, and you know, spearfishing and diving and all that sort. But I think that these were, these were such normal, normal traits. you like, these are normal qualities within humans a hundred years ago. Um, it's just that the way that our society has developed, that this is, this side of things have been left behind. And what I found is that it just gives me a, much greater level of connection to the people that I engage with when I'm doing that and also my environment. You know, like I, I you become extremely observant. You, be, you become the ultimate conservationist because you want to protect this so you can continue to do it and other generations can continue to do it. So I think – I don't think I'll ever stop as long as my legs work and as long as my breath holds all right. I, I think I'll always be under the ocean. I think I'll always walk through the forest. Um, so, and I think it's just extremely important to have our children, um, indoctrinated into that way of life. So maybe we can take a little bit of a step back, um, and reconnect with that side of our, side of our DNA, I suppose, of like that we were all at one stage hunters and gatherers. So after having such a sort of rocky year with the restaurants, you'll get a chance to open Melbourne in November, as you mentioned. Uh, what else is on the cards for the ducks over the, the next year? Um, we've got a we've got a lodge in Nimbo, um, in Nimbo Fork. It's where uh, the Tumut River runs, and then there's a Nimbo Creek that forks off it, and it's a really good trout fishing spot. So um, there was a, a guy, you know, ten or fifteen years ago, or whenever it was built. I think it's ten years ago. Um, he this this guy loved this spot, and he, you know he went used to go there to camp and fish. And um, loved it so much that you built a lodging there and realised how difficult the hospitality is and then moved away from that. But, um, you know, there was this beautiful premises here, like right on the river. So we've, um, we've been able to, to – we're, sort of, we're going to manage the whole food and beverage operation that's coming from that site. Um, it's about – it's four hours from Sydney, so it's, you know, 20 minutes out of Gundagai and 20 minutes from Tumut. So it's kind of like that. So the, the early gateway to the Snowy Mountains. Um, 
and yeah, I, th- I think that's that's another project that I'm kind of sort of spearheading from my side. Most of the other boys are up north in in Byron, um, and Andy's obviously pretty busy with with being in Melbourne with um, with filming MasterChef and stuff. So yeah, I'm kind of I've got the the Nimbo to do. We've got the, the the we've got the lodge in Nimbo as a group. We've got um, the Urban Surf project in Melbourne, and then to be honest, mate, I think I'd I'd like to. I'd like to keep it a little bit. We've also got the the bar that we own in Byron that we've we're going to transition into a restaurant, um, as you you can't really because there's no uh, vertical consumption, um, so you can't uh, you can't have a regal around anymore. There's no nightclubs. There's no there's no like there's no bar scene. You have to be seated. So we've decided to turn the venue that we have in uh, the Lukura venue into a another three blue ducks restaurant in Byron. So that's really going to be interesting. Yeah. So there's, there's a bit on, and then I think once they all settle down, um, I don't really want to do too much for a little bit. I'd like to, <laughs> I'd like to, I'd like to enjoy my family. Um, you know, there's a, there's been a lot of pressures. The whole idea was that the opening of Melbourne would happen before Ava was born, but, um, and then I'd be able to spend a good couple of months to really invest and then, and then come home and focus on being a dad um, but now it's uh, it's it hasn't worked out the way, and I was always so critical of those other chefs of like opening a restaurant and having a child in the same in the same time. I was like, you're a fucking idiot. What are you doing? Um, I know, I know. <laughs> I found myself in the exact same situation. So um, yeah, I think it's I think we've got a couple of tough months ahead, but it's it's just buckling in and getting the work done. Um, but we enjoy that. This is that's this is the most exciting time of a restaurant, to be honest. Or after a year of such highs and lows, how, how are you going to look back at this time? I, I try not to be too negative. I try to be a pretty sort of positive person. And you know, twenty twenty will always be the year that that Ava was born. It'll always, it'll, I'll always remember that experience. Um, you know, and I think that long after this year has has finished, um, I think that I'll I'll very much forget like the the pinch. The financial pinch that that COVID brought to us and the insecurity that was attached to it, you know, um, we still have we still have an amazing business. We still have an amazing group of staff. Um, you know, we ha- we haven't lost anybody. So um, I'm super proud of the way that things were managed from us as a business. I'm super proud of our staff for supporting us, and you know, we we're pretty pivotal in some of the you know we we turned and changed um, with some of the concepts that we were doing. Um, when COVID did hit. So, you know, I think I'll, I'll look back on it and say, you know, what, like that was, I'm happy to see the tail end of it, but I think that we're all going to be, if it's all smooth sailing all the time, it's not really very interesting, is it? Well, it's not too long before you do open Melbourne. So good luck with that. And good luck with trying to uh, cook on shifts and not sneak out the back for a surf. Um, <laughs> Mate, we've uh, loved having you on Deep in the Weeds and it's always good to have a yarn with you. Please keep in touch and uh, we'll talk again soon. Cheers, mate. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we share the stories of Australia's HOSPO community, suppliers and producers in search of hope during this pandemic. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well.